My name is Jafar Iqbal, and this is Critically Speaking, difficult conversations about the arts and culture in Wales. Wherever you are in the world, hello and welcome to the podcast. We've gone past the halfway point of this season and I'm running out of ways to thank everyone that has listened to it so far. Starting a podcast is a scary thing to do and trust me, it's even scarier when you know you're going to be talking about subjects that are difficult or depressing or even controversial. We've had some wonderful comments about the show though from listeners and from guests and that really validates what we're trying to do here. It makes me want to do more of these and that's hopefully the plan. But on to this episode. For the one and only time this season, we've got two guests on the show. Richard Mylan is a nationally recognised TV and stage actor and David Mekatali is an award-winning theatre director. But other than the fact they're both artists, what they have in common is that they're autism parents. I'll be honest, I had no idea how this conversation would go. I just knew it was a subject we needed to tackle and I was proven right. Listening to David and Richard talk about their experiences was really moving for me. I came away knowing so much more about autism and the everyday lives of neurodiverse people and their loved ones. Now the actual recording was over an hour long and annoyingly there's so much stuff I had to edit out for the sake of time. However, this is still a fascinating listen and I'm honoured to be able to share it with you. So let's just get on with it. Welcome to episode 5 of Critically Speaking. Take the first film that we did with my son, Jacko, for example. All we wanted to do was have a truthful, a truthful representation of our experience because everything that I saw up until that point was very dark and very negative. You're not even fun. But a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the media around autism isn't positive. And my experience of autism, although it's extremely challenging at times, is on the whole a really positive, happy one. So I just wanted to kind of represent that. David, you, how long have you been in Wales now? I arrived at the end of 2017. How different is it from England? Well, that's what you get. So my son Daniel... The very, very first time autism got suggested to us, it got suggested in the worst way. So we went through a journey of denial for a while. They handled it quite badly in the end. They just, one day, Tess went into school and they just handed a sheet to her without even saying anything that said autism observation. And Tess was furious, I'm sure you can imagine. If I was there, oh my words, I think, it, I think you know, the whole situation would have got very nasty at that point because you don't handle things that way. And we sort of fought back against that for a while because you do kind of have a certain denial because you think you don't understand my child and you've not talked to us about this properly. And I suppose you don't really know much about the condition at that point. Well, you don't, and you only know what people tell, what you've read, what you've seen perception-wise and things like that. And so you believe all sorts of ridiculous stereotypes, like autistic people don't have empathy or autistic people don't, you know, understand or relate to the world around you. And you're thinking, but my son Daniel loves me and he's caring and... So how, how can you look at it that way? And so we struggled with it at first. How old's Daniel then? So Daniel is now five. Right. And he was first, they were first bringing this up when he was three. So with Jacko, I think he was about 18 months. And it was a, a, like a, a real kind of defining moment. I came Quite up. young. Yeah. Because, it had something to do with the fact that I was filming away at the time. 
I was doing a show called Where the Heart Is. So that was like long periods of time away. I remember coming home and uh, the first thing I wanted to do after sort of hugging him and seeing him, he's, you know, adorable, beautiful child. And I was just like, so happy to see him. And then, so I got my camera out and I, and I wanted to take a picture. And, and as I went to take the photo, he put his fingers in his ears. At 18 months? At 18 months, okay. yeah. And I took three photos. And each photo that I took, the flash would go. And he'd put his fingers in his ears. And the flash would go. And then he'd bring his hands down. And I'd bring the camera up again. He'd do that. And I was like, but there's no, there's no noise here. So why is, what, what, what's going on? If it was a noise thing, why is he sensitive to that? So I was like, well, there's something wrong with his ears. I'm going to take him to an ear specialist. The ear specialist took one look at him. And she said, I think I need to refer you. And then I had that thing then. She just handed me a load of leaflets. And I was like, right, okay. this Same is reaction? Well, the denial, the, the kind of major denial had happened be- previous to that. And then that realisation is led swiftly by a grieving process. That's yeah. the only way I can describe it. Yeah. You go through a grieving process because you're grieving. Par- parenthood is imprinted on us, right? We, we have this kind of natural preconception of what it is supposed to be like. And... When that is ripped away from you, you go through a grieving process because you're grieving all the things that you thought you were going to do. 100%. 100%. And, you know, like, I'm going to do this with my son. I'm going to do that. Especially dads, right? Mm. So you go through this period. And for me, it lasted a long time. Longer than I cared to admit at the time. You know, there was a period where you could really tell I was struggling. But then after that, there was a period where I was still struggling, but I was putting on a brave face. It's a long process, and I think every parent goes through it on some level. And there's a difference between still grieving at one level, but also needing help. You then realise the difference, there's a massive, massive difference between people who campaign from a position of privilege and people who campaign because they have to, and campaign because that is their role. For Richard and me, we have to, because we have to fight for our children. Nobody else is going to do it for you, and, and nobody else is going to take charge of your child that is autistic and go, we're now steering the ship. No, you've always got to steer the ship. You've always got to look after your, your child's rights. And on that basis, you, you have no choice. You're left kind of negotiating a thick wood without a map and a compass. That's kind of one way of... Yeah, I like that. But then there gets a point where your child starts to show you in you know all these different ways that hold, I'm going to show you how my world is or I'm going to give you little insights into how my world is and then you slowly realise that actually you're not going to lead your child through this they're going to lead you through this and that is a really really freeing beautiful moment when you come to realise that I remember when I just thought I've got to let go of all of these things like what I wanted for my child I've got to let go of all that I've just got to like start again and reset my brain and it was such a freeing time that I felt all this weight kind of lifting off me and I started to see my child for what he was and the joy and the, and, and the life inside of him you know and it was a beautiful beautiful moment and then you're still kind of negotiating that forest but you're doing it with joy and you have a compass now exactly exactly yeah and I say, I'm very grateful for the Welsh communities, just how much it cares about access, actually, which is just, I can't tell you what that does as a parent. 
accessibility in theatre has become a, a, a real point of interest across Wales at a quicker rate, much quicker rate than I felt it was in London. When I left London in 2017, not every show I was going to see had a BSL performance, for example, whereas it's almost impossible to go to even a show that has three or four nights here in Wales, almost one will, will have that. Relaxed performances matter. I mean, you know, I think, you know, you and Shane are, are in many ways leading on these sorts of things. I'm aware of how much you care about this sort of stuff. And it is spread up within the community and it does make a difference to us. Because, for example, the first time Daniel went to the theatre was to see Little Red, Little Red Riding Hood at the Sherman. And I mentioned to Gethin, the director, that Daniel was going to go and that he was autistic. So be prepared, he probably wouldn't be able to sit through all of the performance because he, he can't sit there for an hour. And I knew that the Sherman knew this. And I knew that Gethin knew this, and I knew his performers knew this, I knew everyone did, and I knew that that would in not in any way be a problem. That would in no way be a problem. So for me, it, when you talk about your art, the first thing I'm actually thinking about is how that art is accessed, even before I'm thinking about the content of what I'm doing. I'm thinking about how that art can be seen in unity, realising that actually not everyone can process it the way that neurotypical people can. And so... I feel, actually, that the theatre community is my ally on that. Because if I'm to turn around and go, my son Daniel has autism and I want him to see this show, I don't get the feeling that the first response I'm going to have is, that's very inconvenient, or that is a problem. There is an understanding that theatre needs to come to everyone. That, 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 and that's a big passion point. The word I would have a real issue with is the word etiquette. Etiquette is a, is, a, is a really problematic word that I'd love to put in the bin. Because, uh, <laughs> you when, like theatre etiquette. etiquette yeah. Theatre etiquette, but also etiquette in terms of the way we look generally. You know, obviously I'm a director, Rich is an actor. Theatre is a difficult space for disruption. Of course it is. For live performance, an actor, you know, it's not just on a screen. Who can tell? Of course it's difficult. No one's denying that. But the moment you start talking about etiquette is the moment you start talking about exclusion. And it's the moment you start saying that this is the way people should behave in the world. And the problem is, is that no one with autism is ever going to behave the way people no. think they should behave. If that is what is imposed upon him and imposed upon us and imposed upon society, then I guarantee you excluding him having that experience. Did you have a different opinion of etiquette before you became autism campaigners? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, I'll give you an example of, um, we went to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, relaxed performances, yeah? Right. That was a rare occasion, because obviously those tickets are, like, very hot. But they did do it, and it was great. It was full of neurodiverse people, not just autistic people, a sort of myriad of conditions. It was bedlam in there, in the most glorious way. And I just remember being sat there in the middle of it all and just really enjoying the whole experience so much more because of that. Because it wasn't as if nobody was engaged and it was Bedlam. It was Bedlam because they were so engaged. And I just thought, this is bloody wonderful. And then I thought, I wonder how the actors are dealing with this. And then I, I remember I did a show called Things Are Not To Be True with Frantic Assembly. And it was like a main house tour, right? But, but Frantic Assembly's audience are, are predominantly young and they don't have this theatre etiquette. They don't get this theatre etiquette thing. And they're very vocal about how they enjoy a performance. And they don't care if they're sat there with their feet up like this. Sorry, 
Sorry, sorry. Etiquette. I was more worried about the sound. They don't care that their feet are up here, or they're making loads of loud noise with crisps and sweets, or, or being vocal about what they're seeing in front of them, like, don't do it, or, you know, that was oh, no way. Or, really? or, yeah, wow, yeah okay. like, and I, there were these older actors there, and they're like, I can't bear it. I can't bear this noise. They don't have any theatre etiquette. I can't bear it. Why don't they just be quiet and listen to the performance? And I was like, you've got, you've seen it all wrong. They are loving your performance. That's the whole point. They don't know about etiquette, nor should they. And etiquette is, it's like any kind of social rule. It's a load of bollocks. You know? So you've always felt those bollocks. I've always felt that way about it. I've okay. always loved it when audiences are very vocal and noisy and sweets and all that. I just love that buzz and like that energy because guaranteed when a moment drops or, or, or you say a line, you're going to get the same reaction, probably more so. They are still 100% with the play. I think a lot of older actors that get, and, and a lot of older theatre makers, they get wrapped up in this notion of, you know, you have to go to the theatre and sit there and be quiet and bloody enjoy it. It's a very white. It is. Yeah. Hugely. It and is. class as well. Hugely. Oh, yeah. It's a racist and a classist issue, ultimately, because, as I said earlier, it's about exclusion. It's about, this is a club, this is who can enjoy it, and this is how you're supposed to enjoy it. So for me, I'm a very anxious theatre maker. I'm a very anxious person. What Daniel does for me is he's relaxed me so much more as a person than I was before. He's so good for me. <laughs> he's so good for me. I was describing this to, to Tess the other day. You know, I grew up in a single-parent household, just me and my mum. It was a very fraught household, I can't deny it. My mum had bipolar, so it's very difficult. And I'm not used to being in environments that feel relaxed in the moment. I'm just not used to it. My brain is always worrying about the next thing. And Daniel is the first person that has come into my life who can make me be in the moment. That's a gift. That, that is a gift. Mm. And I, I couldn't, wouldn't change that for anything. And so when you talked about the positive, mm. people don't know what that can be, what that is. There's, there's, I can't be in the moment. Do, do you know, I can't yeah. be in the moment in the same way without feeling how he leads me yeah. that way. Yeah. Have you changed as artists? Yeah. I've learned an incredible amount of patience and resolve and also an actor is really bloody self-centred and, and the world revolves around them right and even though I, I am still a little bit like that <laughs> <laughs> before Jacko came along I was really 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 bad like that way I was very typical in that way, a very typical actor. So the patience that I learned and the resolve and just sort of seeing the world differently has had a massive effect on me, creatively speaking. That part in Kilodja, Paul, autism definitely influenced that role for me in my prep for it, in the, in before the audition, because I recognised autism in the language. I recognised autistic traits in the language. I would never have recognised that layer had I not had an experience with autism. I think theatre is more like music than we realise, actually. When we're communicating to someone, like when you're listening to a really great album or something, it's all about the story and that music and how it goes. And, you know, when actors are acting off each other, you're trying to create that. You're trying to create that tempo. And my tempo was, all oh, I've always wanted to do it in a way that felt jacked up, so to speak, in a way that felt 
like it was always going to be stimulated every single moment. But I know that Daniel's mindset would be blown on that after about five minutes because he, he would want to, to, to look at things. He, he wants to go faster times but then slower times. Think about that. It's funny you say that because I read a review of um, A Night with Donnie Sticks. Mm. Right? That was 2016, so yeah. before the diagnosis. And it mentions that it's really frenetic mm. and, it's, and it's really sequenced. And then you look at something like Tremor, which you did, which was so gradual. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely yeah, yeah. does reflect in your Oh, life. yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, you don't know what it is at the time. You think, am I maturing as an artist? Am I looking <laughs> at the world in a different way? Yeah. Am I not just looking at things working on one level? But no, think about the people you're with, the people that influence you, the people you care about. We're like sponges. We take things in all the time. You've both kind of been quite positive about the work community and how it's kind of dealt with parents with autism. What's n- the next step? Adults with autism, I would say. Autistic adults. Okay. I worry about the prejudice in society on that. I'm, I'm worried for, for Daniel. I'm worried about Daniel for when he's not living with me and Tess and the world. I, I absolutely agree with that. Let's take Jacka for instance. He films everything. That's so, that's so sweet. He films everything. That's so lovely. Isn't it amazing? Cut to five, five, six years, seven years yeah. down the line when he's a big old man, he's walking around and he's filming everything. That stops being cute. That starts to be a real concern for the public. That could, that could mean the police are called, right? And Jacko's not giving eye contact and behaving in a way which the police immediately deem as threatening. When he's not, he's stemming and he's not giving eye contact. He looks like he's tweaking on crack or whatever. He's tasered, dragged off, stuck in a... Su- like, all these things are genuine worries for me. And I, and the reason why I'm saying that, because I've, I see that. I see videos of autistic kids being tasered because they have a lack of understanding. So there's so much that we need to do. It's really serious. Yeah. And what you're talking about is really serious. We fear that. And, and I think it needs to become society's responsibility. Mm. It's, it's really, really worrying. And we're still really awful at it. People I like and people who are close to me who I have to call them up on this they'll just go oh I was just talking to a really weird guy over there I was thinking what are you actually getting at by saying weird person you're basically saying someone who is not neurotypical as you see it mm. and now therefore you're all setting them up as a weirdo mm. we've got to get a lot better at it yeah we have to get a lot better at it it should be law that every every public space has autism sensory friendly things in place they're not huge changes, but because it's not law, nobody's doing it. The theatres are leading because theatres are, are much better at being inclusive. They always have been. They've always been at the front of that conversation. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I was in an organisation in the Sherman, you know, it was in Wales, and I know that they care consistently about access. That's Sherman know. 5. Yeah, well, Sherman 5 is really... Sherman 5 is amazing. Sherman 5 is phenomenal. What a difference maker. Do you think Sherman are the best at it in Wales? Yeah, I would say there's a case for that. Who would you say is like, wow, these guys are doing it properly? I would say Sherman, Sherman 5, yes, 100%. Because it's at the forefront of all the thinking. And also, everyone in the Welsh community knows what Sherman 5 is. Yeah. And knows that it's there for. Would you say anyone else? Well, I was just thinking about it then. The the general standard is quite high in Wales, right across the board. But yeah, like Sherman 5, like, it's. It really reflects, I feel like it truly reflects our society. Yes. And, that, and that's what I love about it. I'm going to be cheeky here. Anyone you think doesn't do well? Generally, I found that the more popular a place is, the less they care about sensory awareness.
I do have one Go on. yeah. final question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we're looking to the future of representation on stage, where do you stand on neurotypical role, neurotypical acting? Oh, that's a great question. It's a great question. That's why it's a producer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's one that I think about a lot, actually. Just take All in a Row as an example, the play All in a Row, where they used a puppet to play a non-verbal autistic child. Now... It reignited an old argument, which is that only neurodiverse people should play neurodiverse roles. And I get it, because they're underrepresented in that way. The same way you would now only really want a disabled actor to play a disabled role, right? The problem with it is, for me personally, is that autism is a hidden disability. So it's not something that that is physically manifested, right? And also... Neurodiverse autistic people, they learn to exist in a neurotypical world and they learn to mask. They learn very well to mask, right? So they can play a neurotypical. What the autistic, autism community is saying that only autistic people should play autistic roles, then what they're actually saying is they're shooting themselves in the foot because then only autistic actors can play autistic roles. They can't play neurotypical roles. I don't know what the answer is to this. It's a real tricky one. But personally, I feel that we should be a lot more relaxed about that because we're telling stories and it's... I get it that autistic actors are underrepresented. I get that. But I think the autistic community is shooting themselves in the foot by closing it off like that. Is that a popular opinion? No. Okay. No. I'm I'm in the minority. What's your opinion on that? I would say it's complicated. This is the thing about when you're thrown into something that you're still feeling your way through politically. So when all in a row, for example, people would ask my opinion, and my thing was like, sorry, I don't really have an opinion yet, I'm just worried about, you know, how he's getting on at school. You know, I'm not, you know, uh, it's, all, it's, all, it's all very well and good, but right now I'm like, fine, same thing, I'm worried about getting him some clothes, and I'm doing that right now. Yeah. So are there, are there people choosing to fight that battle? I would say that the thing with, that there are people choosing to fight that battle and I respect opinions on all sides and I think that's kind of where we should be politically because when Richard says his opinion isn't popular but it's also a legitimate opinion because right. you're an autism campaigner who's working in the arts so even if my opinion ends up being slightly different there shouldn't be any sides on this there should basically just be a really really detailed conversation I would say that it is underrepresented, but I think that unfortunately comes from the fact that it goes to the back of the queue when it comes to representation. Now, access is getting better, much better, leading on access, but actual content on stage, I'm not seeing a whole lot of interest in people wanting to, to represent autism, really. We have obviously the very famous ones, Curious Incident, Spoonface Steinberg, yeah. etc. The slight problem I have, no, no, I don't have a problem with those plays. They're great plays. Curious Incident is, is a great show. But they always have to do it in a way where that person is a hero. Uh, that person is someone who comes forward and has this very heroic role from a position of disadvantage and isn't this very surprising and expected. I would like to see autistic people represented as you just happen to be autistic. Rather than, it doesn't have to always be on, in bright lights. Yeah. This is the journey we're on. Yeah, but at least the line is moving. Yeah. Right? Because even like sort of 10 years, whatever, the line was just, yeah, progress has been made. But you're, you're absolutely right. There's a queue. There's a bloody yeah, queue. There's some interest in it. But what I would say is, any representation on stage is good. Yes, we need to see 
more autistic performers. We do. We need to see more autistic performers in autistic roles. We need to see more autistic performers in non-autistic roles. And um, I'd be happy to see a non-autistic person playing a role if I felt they were doing it with empathy, with understanding, because isn't that what we're all trying to do? Increase our empathy? I would say I don't feel that I'm part of team anything on that kind of score, but who knows where you're going to be in two, three years' time? What happens? What, you know, bad things happen, good things happen that alter that view? I'm just thinking about Arts Council Wales' lottery review, which they've just published what they feel the future of that lottery funding is. In that whole document, I don't think the neurodiverse conversation comes up once. And the whole document is about special characteristics. It's about what what is the future of lottery funding. Um, and I don't think anywhere in that document. I'm not the surprised. Interest, the interesting thing is, in my opinion, and I'm, I might have this wrong, but when I think of access, I don't think of autism. And I think that's the problem, yeah. is that people don't link the two together. They, that don't. they don't. It's very low in public consciousness, right? So and they don't even realise it's an issue. That's why like, I felt it was really important to make the film that we just made, mm. because it really addresses that issue and it really hopefully puts it front and centre into people's minds. And then the process then is a kind of natural progression. I, that doesn't surprise me. That's not surprising at all, is it? No. And I've only realised because of this conversation. Yeah. yeah. When I went through that documentary, it was producers going, what do we think about this? It, that wasn't anywhere. It, it's not a surprise because I don't imagine they see it as a priority right now. You think about how long all of these campaigns take. This campaign is still relatively new. Mm. What we've got to think about then is that next time there's that review, it's got to get on it. We all know that when it comes to representation, that we've got to shout. It's as simple as that. Well, what you've mentioned there about not being a document, doesn't that in a way validate every single other thing that is mentioned in the document of showing that actually people have got behind campaigns? People have made movements. But those things have gone on for decades. And thank goodness they have. We're early doors. We'll get there. And also, it all comes down to stats, right? Yeah. So it's one in a hundred people. This is the official UK stat. One in a hundred people in the UK has autism. In America, it's one in 59. And so, and, and President Trump calling it an epidemic, which is bollocks. Yeah. Because actually, they're just better at diagnosing. The point is, if it's one in a hundred here, there's less of an appetite. It's one yeah. in 59 in America, they're doing more. And we, yeah. we will catch up to that. And soon it will be more like, it will be more like one in 10 or one in 20. And then it will be like, right, they're a legitimate, massive part of society. We have to do more and it has to be law. We are going in the right direction. And I would say the fact that you thought that this was an important thing for this podcast, an important part of it, shows we are making somewhat of a dent, somewhat of an impact in the public consciousness. And that's the end of episode five of Critically Speaking. This episode was recorded, hosted and edited by me, Jafar Iqbal. The podcast has been produced by Shane Nichols, who also provided sound support. The episode was recorded at the Wales Millennium Centre in Cardiff, so thank you to them for giving us a space. A big thank you to both our guests, Richard and David, and of course, a massive thanks to you for listening. As always, we'd love for you to engage with us on social media. It's critic underscore speak on Twitter, critically.speaking on Instagram, and you can search for the Critically Speaking Facebook page. Now, you have two more weeks to wait until the next episode, which gives you enough time to catch up on previous episodes, if you haven't already. There are four of them. But until then, thank you, Dioch, and goodbye. <laughs>